Hello and welcome to Ditch Bin Vox, Voices in Digital Finance. I'm your host, James DiBiazio. If you enjoyed the program, give us a like, subscribe, let the algorithm know. My guest today is Ambra Subaran, founder of Kaiko, a crypto markets data provider that caters to institutional investors. I spoke with Ambra about the potential for smart contracts and blockchain finance to provide huge benefits to structured products and derivatives in the traditional financial world, the obstacles to getting there, why she's so bullish on Asia-Pac, and what the recent collapse of banks that catered to crypto companies in the United States means for her business and for the industry. Ambra Subaran, welcome to DigFinVox. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Um, and nice that we're talking to you in Singapore, although you are officially based in Paris. Absolutely. I mean, officially based in Paris and officially kind of all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> our various offices, but, uh, but I've been in the region in Singapore and Hong Kong for a month and a half, and it's been amazing. All right, great. Well, I'm sure we'll get into some of your your feedback and what you see happening in the region. So uh, quickly, so you now run Kaiko. It's a business you founded, uh, providing uh, market feed data on crypto uh, to a variety of users. Um, just tell us a little bit about. And from, before that, you were an equities derivative trader at HSBC. So I think there's sort of a natural flow. Um, and and even before HSBC, you got your start in, in mathematics. So. Uh, obviously, you know you you have a, a grasp for uh, the numerical trading side of of finance. Uh, but beyond that, just tell us a little bit about how you ended up setting up this company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so indeed, as you said, I'm a mathematician by training, and I started the first uh, decade of my professional career in the equity derivatives side of capital markets, um, working out of London. I got personally interested in crypto starting in 2012. Uh, I'm generally interested in technology in a couple of various verticals, including technology in the field of money and what money means. And that's how I stumbled upon the Bitcoin white paper back in 2012. I got initially really interested and started investing personally, but it's not until 2014 when we saw the birth of Ethereum that I realized the transformative power that blockchain technology could have on pretty much any industry that heavily relies on the execution of contracts. And being in the world of equity derivatives myself, um, I think I was feeling that this was a very heavily standardized industry, right? Most of what we do is going to be ISDA-based kind of master agreement. We use standard-defined terms, standard-defined contracts, and then it's about the execution of these contracts. And equity derivatives very often are relatively straightforward um, contracts. They're very often the difference in to, between the strike price and a price at maturity of an underlying asset. And that being said, the execution of equity derivatives rely on the front office structuring a contract, the middle office and the back office, and then settlement agencies. And there are so many processes involved. So when I discovered what smart contract meant in terms of how we can disintermediate the actual execution of a pre-agreed contract, I realized the opportunity um, that it was for the capital markets industry to disintermediate the uh, execution processes of financial contracts. And that really doesn't mean let's kill the banks. It really means 
banks could use that to increase their own operational efficiencies. And right. that is where I see an amazing opportunity. So yes. I got really, really into that rabbit hole. Um, and then in 2016, left HSBC um, for Kaiko that I've been running since. And okay. really, Kaiko is a, as you rightly said, a market data provider in the blockchain digital asset space. And that the reason I went from capital markets to market data in crypto is really still based on the same belief that blockchain as an underlying technology will be the fundamental technology underlying contract execution. And in a blockchain enabled world, two things become absolutely critical. The first one is the capability to issue contracts under the form of code and having that code be you know, uh, resistant to hacking and vulnerability exploiting. Mm -hmm. The second thing is if you have great code, you need great data to enable and trigger the automated execution of those contracts. And that the latter is the role that Kaiko aims to, to bring in a blockchain enabled world. So yes. today we're the data provider of crypto assets, uh, but I do believe that crypto assets uh, as a category is going to grow significantly in the next uh, decade to incorporate a lot of traditional assets as well. Right. Why isn't it happening essentially? Like what, what are some of the the roadblocks uh, for traditional banks to say, okay, well, this isn't about um, some kind of scammy crypto coin thing. This is just my my better market infrastructure. I think we the first thing maybe we have to appreciate is the fact that there is not a single financial institution, as far as I know, that doesn't have a digital assets team today. Mm. Like most banks have realized the potential of the technology and have dedicated resources to figuring it out, right? So we're not in a state of like zero uh, awareness to crypto, which was the case, you know, a couple of years ago. It's really over the past, I would say since the second half of 2020 that we have this institutional awareness. So that's the first thing. Second thing is I think institutions are kind of torn between do we want to do crypto assets today, as in do we want to get involved in holding, trading, custodying crypto assets, as in Bitcoin and Ethereum, and on that front, they are very much waiting on getting regulatory clarity. That's one thing, um, but it's pushed that interest of financial institutions for crypto as an asset class is really pushed by client demand, right? They're having their own clients telling them, guys, we need to touch crypto. I want exposure to crypto, et cetera. Then there's the second other side of the spectrum, which is um, the more technology angle, security token, tokenization of real life assets, uh, stable coins, CBDCs, all of those topics. And those topics are something that, again, most institutions are having internal initiatives. We're seeing leading financial institutions starting to do uh, tokenization of bonds, starting to do things on chain. Here, where the bottleneck lies for me is a bit of, um, of a debate uh, between do we want to leverage public blockchain infrastructure, which banks are still quite reluctant to do because of a lot of reputational risks as well of interacting with public blockchains, which means ending up having crypto just if, even if you want to interact with ethereum which is the most obvious place to go do something it means you have to hold eth in order to pay gas fees and most institutions are still not comfortable with holding eth so they're getting into the world of private blockchains and permission chains and all of these more kind of consortium based initiatives and the problem there is that it's not a technology problem it's a governance problem right is you know getting 12 banks to agree on doing something right. together 
is is hard and it's it's purely a governance problem and so that i think is why it takes time is that mix of we don't really want to touch crypto but we realize the potential is there but we don't really have regulatory clarity and so let's try to do private blockchain stuff but then it's just going back to the same kind of you know shenanigans of not agreeing of the way we want to proceed Right. So, I mean, the magic word is interoperability. I don't even know what that means anymore. People say it so often. Uh, but obviously, if you've got all these permissioned club-like structures, they don't talk to one another. Um, they may not be using even the same layer one. Uh, uh, and, and the smart contracts won't execute uh, a, a, across. Or if they do, you build a bridge and that's highly vulnerable, right? Exactly. So uh, what has that? So I guess there's two ways this goes. Either... Uh, at some point, banks and regulators become comfortable with with Ethereum, or uh, there are some ways for these these clubs to to talk to one another in a way that's secure, so that you end up with sort of a de facto reach. You have the reach of of, of an Ethereum without some of the I, I guess the reputational issues there. Um, is there a third way? Am I missing another alternative here? No, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, it's funny because people tend to oppose private blockchains to public blockchains. And it's either like you have to either you're a database on your own Ethereum. Right. And I think there is a middle ground. Like, I think there is a critical number of participants um, at which a network can be considered decentralized, because the whole point of decentralization is to provide this kind of uh, you know, like security, auditability, censorship resistance, NES, et cetera. And let's assume you have 12 banks, right? 12 banks running a blockchain that is indeed a private blockchain. Let's assume that they agree on the politics and the governance and that they have a Ethereum-like blockchain where actually the miners and validators are those 12 banks. You know, it would take one bank convincing six others to do a 51% attack and manipulate the content. So that is pretty, you know, it's pretty bad, right? I, I don't see a world tomorrow where six banks are going to get convinced that they can actually break the system and, and, and kind of start cheating together. So I, I think that there is a gray area between a fully public blockchain and a database or a completely private, you know, blockchain run by maybe 20 nodes but all those 20 nodes are operated by the same bank which doesn't decentralize anything i yeah. think it's a question of number of participants that can run a system which guarantees the fact that you get that 51 percent attack prevention um so I, i'm a believer that we're gonna get somewhere with those kind of semi-public blockchains mm. um and the other you know way that i could see that happening is with an, a very, very strong Ethereum-like layer one mm -hmm. that then has more permissions, private-like layer twos, where you know you could have those smaller networks that are running a layer two that can or cannot be permissioned, where you can run computation cheaper, et cetera, but then still reconcile on a completely public blockchain when it comes to settlement and account and cash settlement stuff. The other, the other, I guess, contradiction that we're seeing now is so last year we saw the merge, which was part of a long-term uh, re-engineering of Ethereum, uh, and in this case it was, um, you know, moving proof of work to proof of stake and changing the settlement mechanism. Uh, so from an environmental ESG and energy burning uh, perspective, this is a, a massive improvement. Um, and hopefully there'll be other improvements in terms of uh, scalability and efficiency down the pike. At the same time, uh, 
because it's now proof of stake and it's, you know, the SEC is now calling this, uh, calling ETH a security, whereas before it might have enjoyed a more of a commodity-like uh, regulatory uh, approach. So uh, if, if that's the case and this is a security and you've got this decentralized developer network that's meant to be sort of always building on this thing, how, how do these things get reconciled? Do you see a way forward? I find that this whole um, kind of debate around proof of work versus proof of stake and the, the criticism of proof of stake slightly hypocritical. Um, you know, I get something like, okay, but now, you know, if you're a, a, a an ETH whale, you get so much power into the staking network. And so thereby it's less decentralized. And I'm like, okay, I mean, personally, maybe I'm, you know, like, at home, we mine on proof of stake. And what you need to be able to mine on proof of stake is 32 ETH. I'm not saying that's nothing, right? 32 ETH at current prices is about 60K. So you still need to have 60K worth of Ethereum to participate in the network. And with only 32 ETH, your chances of mining blocks is relatively low. That being said, try and run a mining operation for Bitcoin, right? Try to work like it, the costs involved to participate, to get a chance. And by participating, I mean, you know, what is the minimum capital required for you to be able to get a chance at mining a block? I, I don't think it's any lower in a proof of work environment. So I, I, I think that proof of stake is a pretty amazing milestone for Ethereum in, in making that network kind of more accessible and more energy efficient and more scalable. So I, I'm actually quite very positive on, on proof of stake and deeming that because now you have to stake capital instead of energy in order to participate in the network and thereby it's more of a security than it is a commodity, I think is really hypocritical and and sorry to say that, but you know, I think the US, especially these days, is trying to find any possible reason to make everything really, really challenging uh, for crypto-related businesses. Let's take that then to your business, to Kaika, and kind of the, the flows of business that you're enjoying right now. Uh, in, in some ways, you are a, a barometer of demand, I, I suppose. Um, so, you know, where are you finding either in terms of geography or type of institution? Who's who's yeah. buying your data services now? So clearly the so we only work with institutions, right? So it's I'm a good barometer of institutional interest for the space, probably less so on the more retail metaverse gaming NFT world, which we don't address at all. But on the institutional front, clearly the most mature market is the US, ironically, right? It's where we derive currently 60% of our market while still being the region where we see the most competition like of data providers that are addressing and servicing this institutional crypto industry. Uh, we have about 30% of our revenue driven by Europe right now, but it has been interestingly over last year, the region of higher growth. So it's not the biggest proportion, but it's the place where it's been growing the fastest. And then we have about 15% of our revenue that is driven by the APAC region. Um, that is one of the reasons we opened our physical office here about a year ago. And honestly, I'm very bullish about what's going on in APAC right now. It has been until now, uh, less of a mature region in terms of our ability to address institutional demand for regulated, audited, high quality market data. That being said, with everything going on, especially in Hong Kong right now, that is, you know, 
in order to foster a little bit more adoption of crypto assets and facilitating investment of crypto assets. We're really going to spend more time actually in Hong Kong. We're actually relocating our head of APAC from Singapore to be back physically in Hong Kong and grow the office there. So we will uh, open a second office in APAC uh, out of Hong Kong. And, uh, and I'm hoping that in the next couple of years, this is the area where it's still going to be a smaller market, but where we're going to see the fastest growth. Um, yeah. So I'm very, very excited about the prospects of the APAC region growing, especially driven by all of the recent news in Hong Kong. And so just detail us a little bit. What makes you so excited? Is it just sort of the, I mean, we've got institutional licensing here for virtual asset service providers uh, yeah. and and other things going on uh, in, in related legislation and regulation. Singapore um, had sort of initially what appeared to be a, a fairly open arm uh, approach, but then a number of the firms that went down in flames last year were either based there or you had Tomasek investing in them like FTX and so on. So I think they, anecdotally, I hear they've, they've pulled in the, pulled in the wagon, circled the wagons a little bit, but, um, but what do you see going on? You know, what, are, what are some of the other regulations or trends in this region that, that make it, uh, you know, a positive story? So for us, you know, what we provide is institutional, grade um, transparency and availability of market data. Market data includes not just price data, but stuff such as order book, offer and demand, market microstructure, market depth, price slippage, all of these information that are actually key in uh, better risk management, right? In a bull market environment, everybody's very happy looking at price of assets and multiplying that given price with how many tokens they have and not really necessarily taking a very uh, detailed approach at market risk, such as liquidity risk, for example. And that is something where actually we, you know, following the events of 2022, um, have seen more of an opportunity from a, to, to grow that narrative, which is actually we are able to give you a better, more kind of risk-focused understanding of your crypto asset positions. And so that narrative combined with the events of the second half of 2022 has only strengthened our value prop um, in the region. We are already working quite closely with the European and US uh, regulatory bodies. And so we are engaging with the regulators here, both in Singapore, Hong Kong, and Japan, on you know raising awareness around the fact that market data is actually a critical tool for monitoring risks and and kind of uh, you know market surveillance. So that's the angle we're adopting. One of the important you mentioned the integrity of data is, is obviously very important to be able to run smart contracts. Uh, and around that integrity issue is also just basic categorization, uh, you know, uh, taxonomies, agreeing on what things mean. Uh, in the traditional world, uh, the the ISDA world and and uh, ICMA world, they're looking at taxonomies around uh, um, the common. Um, I'm going to get this wrong. I always forget common domain names. Uh, no, that's CDM. Um, common the ISO, like standardization yeah. taxonomy. Um, yeah, standard, yeah, yeah. So so they're moving forward, and and some of this is also. Uh, I wouldn't say it's explicitly for crypto, but I think they're trying to incorporate uh, blockchain-based finance into some of their language as well. Uh, yeah. I don't know what you see coming from from these institutions, these global institutions for the derivatives, repo, and, and uh, bond markets, and so on. But you know, are, are they making a difference in terms of 
trying to ensure a certain standard baseline agreement on what these terms mean? Or is it going to be up to um, the, the crypto industry itself or the banks to, to come up with those terms? So uh, actually, uh, that, that's very uh, funny you mentioned it and, and very point on. Um, I've been working for a couple of years now with a specific taxonomy group at Bloomberg, which is the uh, group behind the FIGI standard. FIGI stands for Financial Instruments Global Identifier, and it is a database of something like 100 million different unique identifiers that uniquely identify um, financial instruments of pretty much all asset classes. And a couple of years ago, we at Kaiko currently uh, maintain a database of market data for 250,000 unique instruments across hundreds of exchanges globally. And so we needed a way to uniquely identify to a given instrument. I'll give you an example. A Bitcoin dollar pair trading on Coinbase is not the same market price, market structure as Bitcoin dollar trading on Kraken. So these are two separate instruments with their individual markets and prices and price formation. So for us to uniquely identify those instruments in our database, we needed a unique identifier. And rather than coming up with yet another way of doing that in our own Kaiko database, we reached out to the biggest identifier that was uh, out there, which is Figgy. And we said, can we extend the Figgy standard to include crypto assets? So then we can start publishing those, co-publishing those with Bloomberg. So we're actually the certified provider of crypto figgies and this is a you won't have heard about it too much because this is really a more of a data management identifier it's a back-end thing in databases but one that is very important from an infrastructure standpoint right then yeah. there's a couple of other initiatives there's the iso dti initiative which is the iso digital token initiative there's the itsa um initiative so there are a bunch of taxonomy, referential data initiatives that are absolutely important in building the market data infrastructure um, that we're seeing out there. And, and, you know, each of these identifiers serve a different purpose. Uh, the Figgy one is really about data management, but the ITSA one, for example, is about classification of assets, depending on their actual use case in real or blockchain life. Um, and so these, there are a couple of, you know, real life big initiatives that are ongoing right now. Yeah, common domain model is the uh, CDM is the term that I was grasping for and 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 failing. So apologies for that. Um, so then that's on the back end, um, and then on the front end, where what is the conversation that you have with I guess trading desks uh, or um, or structurers uh, in a, in a in an iBank uh, division? So we're talking a lot to the uh, risk people, right? Because real time market data is about risk management very often. Um, Kaiko has basically four main business units. One of them is market data, historical market data, real-time market data for all centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, uh, DEXs, lending and borrowing protocols, any application layer that creates market data on-chain. Um, our second business unit is regulated BMR indices and reference rates. The third one is quantitative analytics, mostly risk solutions. And then the, the fourth one is research. So we generally engage with financial institutions that are either in need of real-time data or historical data for running backtesting and um, improving their uh, trading strategies. That's the kind of use case that we do. There's a second use case that is more all of the operational reporting, regulatory uh, use cases where you need regulated end of day market data to calculate a daily nav, to report taxes, to do all of these more operational FPNA use cases. That's more middle and back office. 
Um, then you have the risk teams. They use our volatility metrics, slippage metrics, real-time market data, market structure. This is about risk monitoring and risk management. And then we have a lot of use cases that are also display. So Kaiko doesn't provide any kind of front-end or terminal. What we do is high-quality um, market data feeds through either API or directly through ICE Global Network or BT Radiance or any of those um, network providers. And so we actually are the back end of a bunch of customer facing front end. We're the back end. We have the whole um, crypto pages on Bloomberg are powered by Kaiko. The Masari dashboard is powered by Kaiko Market Data. So we do a lot of integration for customer facing display and front end uh, that needs to rely on high quality yeah. market data feeds. One, one last kind of uh, nerdy question here. What's the difference in terms of sourcing data in the crypto world versus if uh, you know, the, the various data providers in the traditional world? So two very different ways of sourcing market data. One of them is when it's on a centralized exchange venue, such as Coinbase, they have an API. We have a data agreement. We have a data license with them whereby they grant us the right to take their market data and then redistribute it, right? And we have an agreement in place with them. So here it's a combination of technical capabilities to just collect to their API and get real-time data at scale, plus the legal side of thing, which is about the agreement in place with them, giving us the right to do what we do. And then where it gets more tricky is all of the on-chain data. If you want to get market data from Uniswap, which is the largest uh, decentralized exchange, um, there is nobody to give you a license, right? The data can be found in the block. So it's technically inherently publicly available, but actually it's a real technical challenge in order to contextualize and give meaning to a block data, right? What you see in a block is a list of events. And what you have to do is extract those events, give them meaning, reverse engineer the the DeFi protocol after having modeled it in order to use as an input the outputs and come out with the market data, um, you know, data points. Hmm. And so that here, we have a team that spends their time modeling. We just released Uniswap v3 a couple of months ago, modeling the protocols, reading block data in real time and giving meaning to that block data. So it sounds sometime like, oh, the data is there, you know, it's in the blockchain, but actually, <laughs> giving meaning to uh, data in a block is pretty challenging. And this is purely an IP kind of technical challenge. Right, okay. Um, that sounds difficult. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, last, last uh, subject I wanna to touch on, so coming back to where we began, uh, Ambra, is uh, I, I guess, what are the risks to your business? I mean, we've seen uh, in the US, the, the fa you know the failures of of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, as well as the closure of the two main uh, on and off ramps, uh, Signature and uh, Silvergate. Um, so, you know, as as an entrepreneur yourself, um, you know, are you affected by this? Do you have your own bank relationships that you have to, uh, you know, risk manage? Um, and and uh, and then how do you sort of make sure this is that these kinds of issues don't that that all startups often have to deal with um, yeah. uh, don't derail your business. So uh, from a purely like direct impact, we are not impacted because we are uh, lucky to be in crypto without being in crypto, meaning that we don't hold token or issue token or we, we're not a you know 
digital asset service provider in any way. What we do is market data and information. Uh, so we don't have any challenges opening uh, bank accounts, neither in Europe nor in the US. And so we don't have any direct exposure to um, the uh, events of last weekend with the US banking situation. Uh, we did use SVB for a part of our U.S. payroll, but we're able to just withdraw the funds and, and send it to another dollar account. So that's fine. Um, where we are clearly seeing an impact is twofold. One is crypto businesses being directly impacted, because even if the FDIC says that they're guaranteeing all deposit and anyone can withdraw, in order to withdraw, you have to have another U.S. bank account where you can withdraw. And actually, the only industry segment today that is struggling to open another U.S. bank account is crypto, because the three banks that would bank crypto until recently are now closed for business. So I think the industry is clearly suffering. Um that being said, we cater mostly for large banks, large financial institutions, and they are less uh, exposed to these um, issues. It's mostly going to be small crypto businesses, unfortunately, that suffer. So, you know, why we suffer indirectly is when the industry suffers because there are our clients. So for us, crypto businesses that are going to have to you know, cut costs in the short to medium term to face liabilities because their money is stuck and they cannot meet yeah. payroll deadlines and all of this will obviously impact us just if they can't pay us. Basically, that's number one. And number two is all of the clamp down that we've seen recently in the US. Um, our, our growth, Kaiko's growth story is correlated to the institutional adoption of crypto as an asset class, right? Because yes. we unfortunately do not cater for a retail audience because there's not a retail person that's going to pay 100K to get real-time tick-by-tick trade data, right? So our success and our growth is correlated to the institutionalization of the space. And so we're hoping that all of these recent events are not going to slow down this institutional adoption that had made so much progress over the course of last year. Um, we're not really seeing a slowdown from an infrastructure standpoint. We're seeing all the banks actively moving forward with custody solutions. We're seeing the infrastructure providers moving forward. Kaiko is clearly one of those market infrastructure pillars. Um, but but yeah, the, the willingness to spend of the industry on market data will de depend on the activity that they see on that business. And so that's how we're indirectly impacted by the events. And do you need to do any fundraising? Uh, no, actually, we just raised last summer, uh, so we're lucky to be one of those companies that, you know, started the bear market with a, a very recent funding round. So we're trying, obviously, to manage our, our cash as, as best as we can, but we are not in, in need of raising capital in the short term. We will likely go to markets mid-2024. Okay, terrific. Ambra, thank you so much for spending some time with Digfin Vox. Thanks a lot, James.